to Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children podcast, where we bridge conversations from parenting to child well-being and social justice, and we provide resources and tools for parents connected to research that matters to us and to our community. I'm your host, Valerie Adams-Bass, and my esteemed co-host, Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes, is out today, but of course the show must go on. In today's episode, we're diving into a powerful and captivating middle grade novel that beautifully intertwines history, identity, and the strength of family ties. We're talking about Ken, Rooted in Hope, by the incredible award-winning mother and son duel, Carol Boston Weatherford and Jeffrey Weatherford. Hi, Valerie. Hi. Hi, Carol. Hi, Thank Jeffrey. You. Welcome. Hi. Now, why is it crucial that we're discussing Ken on our show? Raising joyful and resilient Black children is about nurturing a sense of pride, confidence, and cultural understanding in Black children and adolescents. This book, Ken, does precisely that, and I'm truly happy to have our authors here, and the book does it in an extraordinary way. Raising joyful and resilient Black children believes in the power of storytelling to shape young minds and foster a strong sense of self. Ken educates about historical events, instills a sense of pride in one's heritage and encourages conversations about lineage, identity, and the strength of knowing one's roots. So as we delve into the world of Ken today, we'll explore how this book can serve as a powerful tool in raising children who are not only aware of their history, but are also joyful, resilient, and deeply connected to their heritage. So, so important. The brilliant minds behind Ken, Rooted in Hope, Carol Boston Weatherford and Jeffrey Weatherford are joining us for this insightful conversation. Welcome to the show, Carol and Jeffrey. Welcome again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. 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 We are so excited to have you. And I'm delighted that our guests, including you, spend their Friday night with us. I'm talking about Ken. This is an incredible book. So Carol and Jeffrey, congratulations on your new middle grade novel, Ken. This story explores themes of family, heritage, and resilience. Can you tell us more about the inspiration behind the book and how your personal experiences influenced the creation of his characters and their journeys? The book is set on the eastern shore of Maryland in Talbot County, and our family's roots run deep on the eastern shore, both in Talbot County and in Dorchester County. But in Talbot County specifically, our ancestors were enslaved at a plantation called Y House, which was the largest slaveholding plantation or enslavement plantation in Maryland. There were as many as 900 some people enslaved on the many plantations owned by the Lloyd family, our family among those people. And Frederick Douglass was among the people who was enslaved by that family. So having been in touch with that land, that region for all of our lives, as children, we visited that area, visit our relatives there. We wanted to see how far back we could go and find some stories from that era to connect us not only with the land, but also with the ancestors who brought us to that land. Awesome. Jeffrey, what about you? Did you have any other thoughts to add to what Carol has shared with us today? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, I'm her son and I was yes. along you know, at first drug along to different historical experiences when I was young, but those experiences, they stayed with me. And as I grew into an adult, I grew to appreciate them more and more. And I used those experiences to, you know, help lay the foundation, uh, you know, drawing from my memory, my own emotions, what I felt while I was at these different places, like 
there was one museum in particular. I, what, was it the Wax, Blacks and Wax? Baltimore, museum. right. Yes, in Baltimore. My hometown. Get Baltimore. They're mm-hmm. props yes. now. Uh, right now. Shout out to Baltimore. Right. Also Maryland. Right. Shout out. Right. Yeah. So I got very upset in the museum and I had to take a breather. Because I started to come into an understanding of how adverse the conditions were for my ancestors. And, mm-hmm. you know, it really hit me hard, you know, as, as a kid. And, you know, still to this day, you know, it's, it's left a lasting impression and a lasting sense of duty, you know, maybe ancestral duty. Tell people about what's happened, you know, mm-hmm. and the, especially now, you know, now that history is trying to be swept under the rug by you know, people in power and whatnot. Absolutely. Karen, I'm going to come back to you, but I want to double back to what Jeffrey said, because on this show, we really do try to talk about and illuminate, you know, the resilience and the joy of Black children. So you said you were drug along, right? About what age were you drug along on those journeys? And when was it for you that you decided to, or it clicked and you said, this is relevant, not just for me learning, but to my personal experience. Although you said this was a family history, family journeys, you said, I was just drug along. I was just going because I had to go. But then it meant mm-hmm. something to you. So about what age? Can you remember about what age when you said, okay, this is this is important? You know, it was, I would say it was well into adulthood. You know, I'm not okay. going to say that I had some, you know, mystical epiphany while I was a teen or anything like that. I was okay. definitely going around and doing all the things that, teenagers would do and then it wasn't until I came into a more cultured understanding of the experience and the opportunities that I had presented to me as a youth and all the knowledge you know I was exposed to that other people had no idea about um, I realized what a privilege that was to experience those historical places and learning all these things so I was an adult I can say Yeah, but he was exposed to history at a very young age. In addition to being an author and a college professor, I'm first and foremost a mom. I'm probably least famous for being a mom, maybe infamous for being a mom in my kids' eyes. But yeah, we took them to, whenever we traveled, we always made sure that we took them to a historic site or to, you know, an African-American cultural institution so that they could be exposed and enriched Mm -hmm. because we never assumed or trusted that the school, however good it was, was going to teach our kids enough African-American history or affirm them the way that we might want them to be affirmed. And so, you know, to be affirmed, you not only need joy, but you also need justice. You need to have a sense, at least have a sense of justice. And so that was what we wanted to instill in our children. And, you know, in, in addition to encouraging them to pursue things like art. (laughs) Sure. No, no, that totally makes sense, Carolyn. Thank you for interjecting. And I say that because, you know, Jeffrey, you mentioned that, you know, you were reflecting on those experiences. So I think, you know, that's one thing that parents need to hear, Carol, that the kids, you may not be appreciative. Our children may not be appreciative at five, six, seven, eight, nine, going through high school of going to a Blacks and Wax Museum or an African-American Museum or a Legacy Museum at that moment. And they may, in conversation, say, I don't remember, or why does it matter, or it doesn't matter to me in this moment. Now, that may be a slightly different given the context we're living in now, but then to grow into a young adult or an adult, and then to be able to have those memories to reflect on and to grow and nurture as an individual builds the resilience, as you said, and builds the, you know, the platform for standing up for justice, particularly for Black children and families. So thank you for sharing and being honest and transparent, Jeffrey. We appreciate that here on this show, both our parents and guardians and 
the children who may be dragged along to listen to our podcast. <laughs> so, Carol, I do want to right. double back to you and talking about Ken. Because it's a very unique having, you know, I'm a reader. I tell people, you know, the library was always one of my favorite places. I just spent Monday and Tuesday this week with a room full of librarians and it was wonderful. So when I think about and started reading Ken, you know, it really is a unique blend of historical narrative and creative expression, both in the visual as well as the literary presentation so when you think about the multi-voice poems and how you weave them together along with the images and the stories that come from different eras and different generations, that long legacy and lineage, can you just share with our listeners what drew you to the poetic form to convey the narratives, these narratives, and how did you decide which poetic styles would best capture the essence of this legacy of the ancestors' experience and the way that you presented it in Kent? Yeah, well, most of the poems are free verse poems. There are a couple in there that are limericks, and I think there's one that's a haiku. So, you know, for the most part, they're all the same form. They're free verse. I'm first and foremost a poet. I'm known probably as a historical writer of biographies and books like Unspeakable, the Tulsa Race Massacre. But even when I approach history, I'm usually approaching it through the poetic form, because I started writing, you know, back to my own childhood, I started writing when I was six years old by dictating a poem awesome. to, my, awesome. to my mother. And my dad was mm-hmm. a high school printing teacher, and he printed some early poems at a very young age. And so back to this parenting thing, I think that, you know, God placed me with these parents. One, my mother who could see that I had this gift, and my father who could affirm that gift by printing some of my early mm-hmm. poems, even mm-hmm before I dreamed or knew that a little black girl could become an author. I was, you know, I was already being not prepared for it because my parents never said, you're going to be an author or you should be an author. But 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 I grew into it. I grew into it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So it was just natural. And that's something that we as parents definitely need to do. Yes, I'm excited. It was natural (laughs) for me to turn to poetry to tell this story. Originally, it was to be a story just about my family. But again, I mentioned Mm. to you, how many people were enslaved at that plantation? How could mm-hmm. I, I mean, if I were, this, this Harriet, I'm going to compare myself in terms of these stories to a Harriet Tubman who went back to the South. And then when she went back to the South, she was just going to get her family. You know, the, that's the real deal. You know, she was right, just going to get right. her family. Mm-hmm. But as she said, how could I turn away these other people who wanted to be free? So I felt like when I was writing this, you know, I just wanted to really, right in the voices of my family. But in the process of doing the research, I found these other people whose spirits also wanted to speak through me. And how could I deny them voice when their voices were so marginalized when they were alive? So I wanted to recreate as many voices as I could. And by surrounding my own family story with these other voices, you get to see a better picture of what my family's lives were like. Absolutely. A more holistic imagery through the storytelling. So I do want to go back teacher to teacher and ask if you could tell us the difference between a limerick, a free verse, and a haiku for our, those who are listening, right? Well, free verse, if it has any kind of pattern, it's very going to be a very irregular one. So it's not a predictable form like a sonnet or even like a limerick. A limerick has, I think, five lines. And God, you would have to ask me about the meter because I'm not going to even be able to tell you the whole thing. But it, but it rhymes and they're like, you know, there's some like, there's some like little nursery rhymes that are, that are even limericks. So let me turn to a limerick. I'm going to have to read one to you out of here. A limerick does rhyme and a haiku 
on the other hand, is a Japanese form. And it's a syllabic form. In English, it's a syllabic form. So meaning there are five syllables in the first line, seven in the second line, and five in the last line. So it's five, seven, five. And a limerick, as I said, has five lines. And it's real, you know, it's real quick. Usually, and a lot of times the limericks are humorous, but I uh-huh. use limericks in this book to convey some more serious themes. Like one, there's one about the Underground Railroad and there's one about an overseer who's extremely cruel. So, sure. yeah, so that's, you know, yeah, to kind of yeah. soften the blow of the subject matter, I used a form that was more light, more lighthearted itself. Sure. Absolutely. So thinking about the forms and thank you for our crash course (laughs) for our (laughs) listeners, getting them primed up or back to school. (laughs) I just want to, you know, again, in reading the book and just kind of falling in love with the gentleness around such a difficult topic. And then to start out with just the lyrics, if you will, the words, and then to open to the pictures. I must ask you, Jeffrey, given your transparency around, you know, coming into your own and really valuing your own history as well as African-American and Black history, how did you decide and how do you begin collaborating on the illustrations, given what we just heard about the different poetic forms and using that to soften the blow of some of this difficult history? So a lot of research goes into the illustrations, of course, because it has to be historically accurate. You know, I can't draw the enslaved peoples wearing Nike gear and all types of stuff because that didn't exist. And, you know, I wouldn't get work. Um, the publishers wouldn't really go with that. So I do something and I go to the libraryofcongress.gov, which is a huge resource of historical photographs, documents, journals, firsthand um, experience, secondhand experiences basically uh, a huge reference for American history. And a lot of research is also done by my mom. And she will also send me different snippets of photos and ledgers, like writings from ledgers and just all different um, arrays of content for me to pick from. And she will also let me know what she feels like should go into the book. There's something like a strong point that she feels like needs to come across. She'll let me know. And I'll definitely, you know, honor that and respect that and put it in the book. Uh, Most of the things that she says, you know, she wants in the book are going to go in the book if I'm the illustrator. (laughs) Sure. So I have to chuckle and say, okay, what was it like working with your mom? You know, you, you know, as a professional illustrator and your mother being both a professor and an author. So really doing your own research, both on the stories as well as, you know, the imagery. What was it like working with your mom for our listeners who may be about to go into business with their parents? Right. So, you know, it's it's fun. It's fun to work with your mom for the little ones out here listening. You get to travel and go around and, you know, sign autographs if you're in the realm that we're in course you know i don't know different types of businesses have different types of high accolades that you achieve but that's one of ours so that's one of the rewards and of course the actual work process we don't typically work together like in the same room or the same building or anything or even the same city outside of her yeah or even the same city exactly or the same state right and she lets me know, like I said, if she wants something to go into the book that she feels like has to have, like is a strong point in the book. And I will, again, put that in there. But a lot of times, you know, I'm not showing her the artwork that I'm doing. She might see the initial sketches for things, but then 
like the end, uh, it, when I turn in the illustrations to the publisher, that's pretty much the first time that she gets to see them as well. The final. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's an element of collaboration and surprise. Yeah, I don't get a whole lot of special yeah. privileges, although I should. <laughs> I should. Okay. 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 We keep it. We keep it professional. We work together pretty much. I pretty much the same a, way as other authors and illustrators. I think. Yeah. That sounds like a hit. If we lived in the same household, it might be. <laughs> you. you know. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a little bit of a hit. <laughs> I'm wondering. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm right. wondering if you might want to share some of your artwork. Is there something that we might be able to yeah. share with our listeners uh-huh. to the podcast from the book? So this is Chicken Sue. A illustration was well, a portrait. That's the type of illustration that it is of one of the enslaved. She was an enslaved young girl who tended the animals. And there was an instance of chicken fighting in the book and she you know she didn't like that you know her friends were fighting so my favorite styles of art one of my i guess my form um is doing portraits or portraits so the portraits that you see in the book i really aim to have them be as photorealistic as they could be and one of the the difficult aspects of working to do photorealistic artwork in the historical time frame that we are talking about is that a lot of photos aren't very high quality. So one of the photos, the, the most photographed man in America at the time, Frederick Douglass, you know, there are a lot of photos of him. And one thing Jeffrey hasn't mentioned yet is the fact that these are scratchboard illustrations done digitally. Scratchboard. So using a classic form of art using technology. Right. right. Absolutely, absolutely. So you can see this photo, well, this illustration of Frederick Douglass is very a high quality, I would say a high quality rendering. But there's some images in the book that I didn't have that like that well of a quality uh, reference. Like this wasn't a photograph. This is Francis Scott Key. Uh, and this was an act, uh, like an actual, I think the reference photo was like a print that was done of him so you know it wasn't like real life and i think i think personally it might just be like an artist maybe i'm being too hard on myself but i feel like this isn't as high quality of a rendering as the frederick Douglass. but i'll leave that to the readers to decide or maybe it won't be something that they're thinking about at all and that's just how artists think right you know i'm the hardest on myself Sure. But I think that, you know, the literal art, the written art form in this particular book, as well as the visual art form, which I think is great for middle grades because we have different levels of readers. And what I think is so fabulous about this book is that you have the visuals that accompany the storytelling. So for those readers who may be disinterested when they first see all the words, although they are in poetic form, once you see the pictures, you have to be a little bit curious about What's the story behind or what's the story that accompanies this picture? So I think that's what makes it and right. inc- you know incredibly attractive to middle grade readers, those who are high readers, as well as those who are low level readers. And it gives them a chance to take a break, right? Because this is a, a pretty intense topic. So awesome. And thinking about how they come together to tell the story and bring the reader along. So thank you for that. 
Carol, you know, when we were talking about the artwork that Jeffrey put into the images in the book and how they are woven together to tell the stories, like there are a couple chapters where all the family members are listed, the children, then later on we hear about some of those children and what responsibilities they had in the big house. So when you think about the characters in Ken, which is really a story at heart of the strength, really the resilience and the strength of family ties across generations. How did you approach crafting those intricate relationships between the characters, those who are blood relatives and those who aren't, to convey that intergenerational connection and also the challenges that they face together? And then, you know, Jeffrey, as we're listening and talking about that, just thinking again about your artistic talents and how did you use those to portray the emotions visually, because I think the word and the visuals work together. Carol? First of all, the way I approached this entire project was knowing that family stories are treasures. Also, I realized that, probably on the back end of this project, that knowledge of one's lineage is really a form of generational wealth. Absolutely. It's a form of it's you can't take it to the bank, but on the other hand, or the on the other hand, you can't lose it in the stock market either. You know, once you've got that, you've got it. But sadly, it's something that most black people don't have. And if we try, if we even attempt to trace our roots, many of us won't be able to go back beyond the 1870 census because we were not considered human beings. We weren't even, you know, we were owned, we were property. And you won't find us in a census. Our fate when it comes to genealogical outcomes has to do with, often has to do with the kind of record keeping that the enslaver did. So fortunately, the enslavers of my family, at that part of my family, kept uh, really uh, good records and gave those records to the Maryland Center for History and Culture. The family is called, was the Lloyd family. And in those ledgers, I was able to find, you know, my family going back to 1770, before the Revolutionary War. But I was also able to find names of other people who may or may not have been related to my family. Some of the same names came up again and again. Some people had surnames, some people did not. But nevertheless, at Y House, that was the name of the plantation, which was the flagship of the Lloyd family. They had many farms in that county, but that was the flagship. That was where they lived. There was a community of 300 enslaved people. And in large part, you know, it was a kin community. So these people are having babies and, you know, bringing new generations. But, you know, it all started with a few families. And so it's really this huge kin community. And so I realized that family not only meant, you know, my my blood relatives, but everybody was family there. Not just because, not just by blood, but because they were, but because they all shared the same condition and they were bound by water and it was so hard to escape. I approached it that way that, you know, I didn't, yes, I know that some people were my relatives because they had my surname, but other people may have married in and out of the family, but certainly Mm -hmm. they were one big family at this plantation, whether they shared blood or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks. And so thinking about that kin relationship, as you said, both blood and those who aren't blood, but, you know, being in that space and sharing that experience, both the joy that they could capture as well as the hardship. Jeffrey, how did you approach including images that might capture some of that, that kinship relationship 
that we might see in some of the images that are included in the book? So one way that I decided to add a line of continuity to the book is to use my own family as references within the illustrations that we see. This chicken too, she's not one of the one of our family members, but if you look through the book, there are certain images that are actually, you know, family members like my niece is in the book, my wife. I'm in the book in a few of the photos used for different shots, you know, as well as actual family members. Mm. Okay. So really leaning into your actual family's relationship and including that. Mm -hmm. So bringing them alive, making the connection in the book. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So thinking about that, and as you said, thinking about contemporary as well as those historical images, those past generations of your family, right? This multi-generational relationship that appears in the book. Carol, you mentioned, you know, early on when I, you know, was asking Jeffrey about how he came into his own, you know, interest in this. You talked about the role of parents and being the first educators, right? The home is the first place that we learn that, you know, we can't necessarily leave it up to the schools to educate our children as well as Jeffrey mentioned now, when we think about the distortion and attempts to distort American history even further, you know, there's these levels of the Black American identity that come through in this Ken story, right? So even today we have relationships, for example, my daughter has numerous aunts, although I only have two blood sisters, right? So she has numerous aunts who are part of that Ken connection and that village. So we think about, you know, how this book addresses themes of identity and heritage, and how we tell stories, both your approach to telling stories, to writing this book, as well as the stories that are told about the characters who appear in this book. And Ken, what is it and how do you want young readers to connect with and reflect upon these stories, particularly when we have young readers whose parents may not engage in museum visits and books and historical content about the Black experience in America. So this may be for some middle school students, whether Black or not, but particularly Black children, this may be their first engagement with this kind of story about the Black experience that follows multiple generations. So when you think about that, you know, how can young readers or how do you hope young readers connect with the themes and reflect upon them given the time that we're living in, you know, at the tail or still know, moving through this Black Lives Matter movement, thinking about the longstanding and continued impact of COVID-19 on generations and that legacy, what would you like young readers, particularly young Black readers, to take away or gather from this book? Carol? Well, I want I do want them to understand that knowledge of your heritage is generational wealth. And I want them to value their past you know, not just what they learn from this book, but what they may learn from other books or from visiting places or from talking to their elders. I want them to value those narratives and know that even though they may not be that interested in them today, the day will come when they will will lean on that knowledge because it fortifies us. If you look at the way, uh, at the stories in the book and the way that people had to lean on each other, you know, we're still leaning on each other. Our community's not the same anymore. You know, it had to evolve, but we still need to be able to lean on each other in the family and in the community. And we still need to look back in order to go forward. Sure. Absolutely. 
Thank you. When I was reading this book in preparation for our conversation, the presentation made me think of the Legacy Museum. You know, I immediately thought of the presentation in the Legacy Museum, which is in, you know, Alabama, and how there are different sort of time periods presented in the museum, the Equal Justice Initiative Museum, where you have stories being told in different formats, to your point. So there might be stories of those who were enslaved, and then there's stories of those who are currently incarcerated, and everything in between. And it's the audio storytelling, the written storytelling, and the visual storytelling. So when I was looking through this book, I said, wow, this so reminds me of the museum. And there is an emotional response to both reading this book as well as walking through that museum. And so I think about that. And I, and I have to ask you, Jeffrey, again, I have to come back because this is such a team effort. How do you anticipate young readers engaging more deeply because of the images that are included in the text? Well, you know, they say that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And I definitely agree, you know, when it comes to, you know, judging humans, right? Of course, you know, that's an analogy. But mm-hmm. artwork is what attracts kids to, you know, that first initial initial touch point for the book. You know, and a lot of people, we're, we are drawn to things that are visually um, interesting, whether that's from the color scheme that it has or the lack of color scheme, you know, like a very monotone book, the art is typically the first touch point that we have, um, even if, that, if that's just text-based as an adult. So, you know, the job that we have as creatives, you know, the, the art team at Simon & Schuster, uh, as well as myself, we have a very intense job is to get people to pick the book up. Right. Getting people to pick the book up is, is sure. you know, not a huge part of the battle. So I wanted to have someone who is around the age range of the target audience, which happens to be our niece. Well, my niece and my mom's granddaughter. So I wanted to make sure that it was speaking to that demographic. You know, people tend to gravitate towards things that they can see themselves in. Right. So wanted to make sure that the youth Absolutely. see themselves in the book. There's multiple in this story as well, not just visually, but mentions of them and how they interacted during that time through the poetry and the story. The book can really be read, you know, one of two ways. It can be read from beginning to end, but because mm-hmm. it's poems, I mean, you could read a poem any, you know, in the voice of any one character. Each poem can stand alone. And, you know, it tells us each poem is itself is its own story. But if you read all, all of them, you'll see how they, you know, how many of them connect because the people in the poems are connected. Sure, sure. I love, love, love the cover. Uh, I, I hear your pun not intense. I love the cover. I actually love the back because it shows multiple generations. And I think that that would pique the curiosity of young people. Um, I have to give truth in advertising that I have worked with the Children's Defense Fund Freedom School and we are, you know, they're always looking for texts and books. And I think about those readers who are voracious and those readers, not so much, right? So there are always books that include poetry because it's easier to engage right. them. And I love, like I said, the different ages, not just the different generations over the time period that are presented on the bag, in addition to this bold front-facing cover, but I see different generations here. 
And I like, you know, Carol, you said you can read, you know, it doesn't have to be a chapter by chapter. You can just open, which is kind of what I started reading chapter by chapter. But I said, let me flip through, you know, and started reading. So I love that about this book. And I'm excited to have other young people, young people read it and get their hands on it and to see it in lots of spaces. So I have a couple of questions. One is, is there a teacher's guide to go along with it? Or will there be a teacher's guide to go along with it? And then two related or not, depending on who you ask, how do you see this form and this text coming out now when we have so much celebration of hip hop at the 50th year anniversary? And, you know, so many of the originators talking about, you know, the poetic form in verse, how do you see, or do you see this as related in terms of the different selections of poetry that you've chosen to include in the text? Well, I don't necessarily see this book tying in not yet right now per se Mm -hmm. my my mom has been saying jeffrey you should make a rap about ken i I also rap i used to want to be a rapper a long time ago once upon a time but i use it for edutainment now you know for the kids and i i I make Mm -hmm. um, history hop absolutely for a lack of a better term so you know my mom wants me to write a rap about ken or ken rap so that mm-hmm. is kind of the way I could see it tying in to the 50th year anniversary. But sure. as it stands now, as poetry, like as short form poetry, I don't necessarily, me personally, not necessarily saying that it can't happen, but I just don't see anybody picking it up and saying sure. oh, the hip hop 50th anniversary. You know, I don't think it's that type of. Sure. Until you write that rap. (laughs) (laughs) You can write the rap or we can just use rap as an entree, as a segue into connecting with the book. So I saw this and reading it. Right. I didn't necessarily see it as, wow, this reminds me of the 50th anniversary. But the teacher had in me, the parent had in me said, how would I get a reader who's not a reader to think about this and get excited? And there's so much storytelling, particularly when we hear more recently the interviews of the early you know, progenitors of rap and the storytelling that they were doing. So thinking about you know, helping young people to see the connections between different forms of storytelling and the relevance of keeping our history, right? This multi-generational history, this keepers of the culture and using poetry to keep that culture. So it's not always going to be in rhyme mm-hmm. format, you know, right, right. Um, with a pair of 808s, but that's how I think of it. So not maybe necessarily the direct connection, but how do you c- help young people connect and t- to love it? Because I like books. I feel like this is the kind of book that would help young people love to read, right? There are books that you just read and say, eh, Maybe later when I have an epiphany, but I feel like the format, the visuals here is the kind of book that you could use to help young people love to read and that you could make that connection. You could have a dialogue with them around what do you like about the storytelling of this particular artist? Well, let's talk about the storytelling that occurs in this book. That's probably the teacher yeah, had in me. most definitely. So. And, and one, thing, one thing I hope <laughs> that young people will be inspired to do is to research a little bit of their own heritage, even if they just go back to their grandparents or maybe great-grandparents, and then they may not know all the information about that person. This is what we had to do. We had to then create the stories around these people because we had names and we had dates and we had locations and we may have had some details about the location, but then we embellished that. So we we had this family tree with the roots and the branches, but we had to put the leaves on it ourselves. 
And, that, and, any, and I think anybody can, you know, you have creative license to do that within your own family. And it can be a very rich experience, you know, regardless of how much imagination you have to bring to bear to fill in the gaps in the archive. Absolutely. And we know that that happens even today within our community. So I want to thank you both. But I have to ask you again, this is our podcast is Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children. And as parents, both of you and and grandmothers and, and uncle, tell us what tip around joy, right? Because we've talked about the resilience that was associated with these characters. We've talked about your strategy to softening the, you know, the content, you know, the adverse content and reality of the experience of our generations of Black Americans who were enslaved Africans. So what's your joy tip for parents and for guardians who are raising Black children today? What's your takeaway where you say, you know, I know that, you know, things can be tough as a parent or things can be tough as a child or adolescent, but Here's my joy tip for other parents. What's your joy tip or guardians who are raising Black children? Well, I'm going to speak, since I'm an author, I'm going to say my joy tip is read a poem with your child. And maybe read it at night. It can be a bedtime poem rather than a bedtime story. Read a poem with your child and maybe read the same one over a week and the two of you memorize it together. But it's, you know, it's quality time. It doesn't take long. And it's an intimate experience and it shows that you care. And for kids, you know, knowing that their parents care, I think that's a large part of the joy. Sure, sure, sure. Expressing your care through that reading, that intimate moment. No. Thank you, Carol. Jeffrey, did you have anything you want to share your joy tip for our parents and guardians listening today? I'll expound upon what she said. Yeah, reading a poem, writing a rap, writing a, I've never done this, I don't have any kids yet, but writing a rap with your kids. I think that would be something cool, you know, like a little family rap. And uh, secondly, just allow your kid the opportunity to explore what they enjoy. You know, don't just try and force them to be whatever this world wants to cookie cut kids out to be these days. You know, everything is not for everybody, um, but what's for you will be for you. And you will see that glimpse of what they're drawn to, you know, whatever that spark is, and you just have to nurture it again, nurture it and be patient, right? Like, uh, I know I wasn't the easiest kid, you know, but uh, bamboo tree, for instance, it, you know, it takes a long time for it to break the surface, but then once it breaks the surface, it shoots to the sky. So you just have to be patient until your bamboo tree or your kid shoots up. Sure. So that's coming from Uncle Jeffrey. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so you mentioned you have a niece. So I want to thank you both again, Carol and Jeffrey, for sharing with us this labor of love and tracing your family roots and bringing along other members of that kin relationship for the ride and inviting us as readers, as our young people, as well as the parents and adults who love them and the guardians to come along for the ride and learn more about your family and the experiences that are probably similar to so many of our ancestors, named and unnamed. As you mentioned, Carol, the idea that for many of us, unless there was a detailed leisure or account of the slaves, it may stop at 1870, right? Our search of names and people and places. So we are just so delighted that you join us for our first episode this season. We are excited to see where this book takes our young readers. We're hoping that our parents are just as excited as I am to share the book and to become engaged with 
your family, right? And this kin relationship. So thank you again for spending your Friday with us. Probably I'm a nerd at heart. I'm okay with mm-hmm. that. I'm going to have a seven-year-old. And she said, mommy, what's a nerd? I said, it's okay. Your mom's a nerd. It's a good <laughs> thing to be. <laughs> if you're, It's a good thing to be. So thank you both for sharing time. And, and really, I like, Jeffrey, what you said about nurturing what it is you see in your children or those children who are in your life, which is what Carol shared with us, your mom, this idea that, you know, her mother and father, you know, nurtured this poetic gift and talent at a very young age, as young as six. So we can do that with all of our children. We're excited for you sharing your joy tips with our parents and guardians who are listening and even our teachers who may be figuring out how to connect with our students in class, how to bring this book into the conversation that they're having. So we thank you very, very much for joining us. And I look forward to finishing the book. Thank you, Valerie. You are quite welcome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your time and your talent with us. No problem. My pleasure. Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children is part of the Alive Podcast Network. The podcast was created and produced by Jacqueline Duget, edited by Manny Simon of Vita Productions. Follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to whatisblack.co. Again, that is whatisblack.co for parenting resources and tools. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at whatisblack. That is at W-H-A-T-I-S-B-L-K. 